Well, good morning, everybody. Good to see you this morning. And uh, I just have a question for you as we start. I need to know how many of you out there would consider yourself a do-it-yourselfer, a DIYer? Can I see a hand? My people are here. Yeah, you don't count, Bill. You do it for a living. You're expected to do it for yourself. You know, I am convinced, there's no doubt in my mind that it was my father who gave me the courage and the encouragement to become a DIYer. Uh, I still remember the first project he gave me to do. Uh, We had a non-working push lawnmower. And he said, why don't you tear it apart and see if you can figure out why it's not working? I couldn't have been more than 12 or 13 years old. I'd never put a wrench to a motor before, and so he wanted me to dig in. The motor was a mystery to me, honestly, as I started, and sadly, it was a mystery I would never unravel. I still remember taking the mower off the body of the push mower and taking the engine out and and looking at it and starting to randomly remove bolts to try to get it apart, and I remember that one bolt. That one bolt that I took out, and then I started working the body of the mower apart, and I heard a noise that I wasn't expecting. I heard all of the internal gears fall into the bottom part of that motor. And I did what any one of you would probably have done in the same situation. I quickly put that bolt back in, bolted it back onto the mower frame, and left it as though nobody had ever touched it. Cleaned the tools, put everything away. In fact, it wasn't until I was well in my 40s that my dad and I ever talked about that mower. And he knew from the beginning. I mean, all you had to do was grab the handle and pull, and you knew this thing was never going to run again. I was mortified. But because my dad didn't hold that against me, because he encouraged me to keep trying, keep testing new things... Today, I'll tackle just about any project. And we've done all kinds of remodeling on our home. I'm not afraid to mess with drywall and electric. Maybe I should be. I'm not afraid to mess with plumbing. I've got this sense of courage that has grown in my life and has been aided by the growth of Pinterest and YouTube. So I really do think I can do anything now. I say all that to say this. I think sometimes we're guilty of approaching our relationship with God with a do-it-yourself strategy. When we encounter an issue, when a challenge in life is put before us, it's very easy for us to view it as simply a problem to be solved. We then lean into the Bible as the instruction manual for life. We dig through it to find principles that can be applied to our specific situation because we're convinced, armed with the right information, we can fix anything. But that's not the way God intended for us to relate to Him or to His Word. And that approach, this I-can-fix-anything approach, puts us at the center of our universe and fundamentally changes our relationship with God. So last week we began this new message series. It's going to take us all the way through the month of June, and we're taking a look at how we relate to God and reimagining what that could look like. And in this process, we're going to first look at four postures we often choose as we relate to God and why each one of those is so appealing to us. And then at the end of the series... We'll take one Sunday and we'll look at what it is that God really desires for us 
to have in a relationship with him. It's important, I think, that we look at these first four because while I don't believe that there are many people in this world who would solely live their life with God out of one of these postures, I think we have this tendency to mix and blend them together into what really is a relationship with God for us. And it's not always accurate. I think every one of these postures comes, from, it comes as a response to the world that we live in. This world is a dangerous place at times. It's filled with chaos. And so as a result, we try to manage that fear that arises out of that chaos and gain control over the situation, or at least try to control the extent of the consequences of what it is that's causing our fear, how it impacts us, how it impacts our friends and our family. So we just try to control the world around us. Every one of these postures has that same common starting point, and every one of them seeks a solution to this danger, fear, control cycle in our lives. For example, last week we talked about what it looks like to live a life under God. And this graphic up on the screen will help, screen will help portray that for us this morning. We live this life under God where we try to control the world through our religion by virtue of rigid religious rituals that we fill out or our morality, how good we are, how much we're following God's commands. And the reason that God is in between there is ultimately we're trying to control God's behavior and making him indebted to us because we're especially moral people or because we do religious things with a frequency that God would approve of. But all that begs the question, how good is good enough to put God in my debt so that he'll have to control the chaos and the fear in my life? Today we're going to look at a life over God, which dismisses everything that we talked about in a life under God, dismisses all those rituals and morality as simply being irrational superstition. And in its simplest form, a life over God works like this. God has created the universe with certain knowable and immutable laws, like the laws of thermodynamics, the laws of gravity, the laws of mathematics, the laws in our life that determine whether the top of the toilet paper should go on the top. or That's an unchangeable rule, right? Not really. Just get married, you'll find out. Our task in life, though, is to discover these laws and translate them into principles that we can apply to our life. A life over God, as a result, effectively cuts out the middleman and gives me and you direct control over the chaos in our lives. Uh, The sinister shortcoming of this life over God is that it creates a formulaic faith. You can find it. If you just do a quick search on Amazon, you will find a number of Christian books, thousands of them literally, that are out there that try to get us to buy into and follow the formula of how we should live our lives or manage chaos when it comes into certain aspects of our lives, like the books that promise five steps to a more godly marriage or the three biblical laws of leadership. There's actually a book out there now that's the title of the book is Jesus as CEO, as if that's what Jesus came to do, was to build this religious corporation that he would be in charge of. 
It also teaches like four ways to manage your finances God's way. Applying all of these principles in this book, in these books, interestingly, can be done often without a relationship with God, which is the very thing he wants most with us. These books are filled with proven formulas to help you get control of an area of your life that is out of control. And though it's never the author's intent, I don't think anybody who's a believer sits down and intends to write God out of the plan. What actually happens is if you follow their principles, God can be set aside. He need not be involved in any way for these principles to work in your life. God can be praised, God can be thanked, God can be worshipped for giving us wise precepts, but his participation in our life is altogether optional. These books like the, and messages that are often heard on Christian radio are so appealing to us because working through principles is a lot easier than working through a relationship, right? I mean, relationships can be far more unpredictable. They can be um, time-consuming. They can be chaotic. And that's true of any relationship, whether it's divine or human. And principles, on the other hand, are comprehensive and clinical. The Bible gives us some insights into some people whose life operated at least in part this way. And what I want us to look at this morning is Moses and some of his leadership over the nation of Israel. He became their leader after they had been in slavery for more than 400 years. The Bible tells us that they cried out to God because of their suffering and God heard them. And he sent Moses, a reformed murderer, and turned rancher, he sent Moses to lead these people and to rescue them. From the very beginning of Moses' story, God demonstrates his power in Moses in a very interesting way. It comes through his staff that he's been carrying while tending the sheep for 40 years. He later would stand in front of Pharaoh and get into this magic contest with Pharaoh's magicians. And they threw their staffs down, and it became a snake. And he threw his down, and it became a snake, which then ate all the other snakes. Moses lifted his staff every time he called down a plague from God on the people of Egypt so that they would let the Israelites go. In one of those plagues, he actually touched his staff to the river Nile, a deity to the Egyptians, and he turned the entire river into blood. Yeah, whoa. It's always nice to get that affirmation that somebody's listening. (laughs) Then there was that one famous instance where Moses lifted his staff as the Israelites were being pursued by the Egyptian army. Facing certain death, Moses lifts that staff and the waters part in this sea and the Israelites walk through that seabed that is now dry ground to safety on the other side. Moses' staff became a symbol for for God's power and presence and authority in his life. But getting out of Egypt, getting across that sea, wasn't the end of the story. They were on their way to the promised land, a land God had been promising for generations to them. And because of their disobedience, they ended up wandering in the Sinai Peninsula for 40 years And they faced significant challenges as a people, not the least of which was finding water. In Exodus 17, 
we have the first of these instances where they just can't seem to find enough water to drink. And the people are complaining and blaming both God and Moses for this. They talked about how hot it was in the desert, how dry it was in the desert. It seems like that's why it is a desert, but they didn't get it. They said it's uncomfortable to travel in the desert. And so God tells people, God tells Moses to gather the people and the leaders of Israel together, stand in front of them all and strike this rock with your staff and water will come out of it for the people to drink. It was a pretty amazing miracle because when Moses struck that rock, this river of water started to come. It was enough water. This is not a small deal. Estimates are the nation of Israel wandering in the desert was about a million people. And so there was enough water there to hydrate all those people and all their livestock. A very similar scene unfolds in Numbers 20. Again, the people are angry with Moses. He's led them to an evil place that's horribly dry and doesn't have any food. And as we are prone to do when we complain, they uh, reverted to hyperbole and said, Look, our lives were so much better back in Egypt. Really? 400 years of slavery, subjugation is better than this? And as he had done so many times before, in the middle of their complaining, Moses goes to God for help. And God says to Moses, take this staff and you and your brother Aaron gather the assembly together. And now watch what God says. Speak to that rock before the eyes of the people and the rock will pour out its water. Something happened to Moses between this conversation with God and the time he stood in front of the nation of Israel. We're not told what it is, but it's obvious something went on inside of him that caused that message to get changed. Moses took the staff from the Lord's presence just as God commanded him, and he and Aaron gathered the assembly together in front of the rock, and Moses said to them, Listen, you rebels, must we bring water out of this rock for you? I mean, do we have to do this every time? Aaron and I have to bring you water when you start griping and complaining. And what? I mean, I'm reading into the text, but that's kind of where Moses went, right? And Moses at that point raises his arm with the staff and struck the rock twice. And water gushed out and all the community and their livestock drank. Rather than obeying God and speaking to the rock, Moses struck the rock with his staff. He disobeyed God. Why? Let's look at this again. Moses, at this point, is literally between a rock and a hard place. I had to try, right? It was there. And this furious mob of Israeli people are starving. They're thirsty, and they're ready to riot if Moses doesn't solve their problem. There's chaos. There's danger. And Moses, I think, gets afraid, and he needs a guaranteed solution. He needs something he can count on. He needs some way of supplying water that will not fail. And so Moses turns to what had always worked in the past. <clears throat> he turns to his staff. His fear of the people, his need to control the situation, led Moses to disregard his relationship with God and to put his trust in what he felt was a proven formula for success. Moses paid a heavy price for this. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron, because you didn't trust me enough to honor me as holy in the sight of Israelites, 
you won't bring this community into the land I gave them. More than half his life, Moses had been leading the people, working with the people, trying to get them to understand God's goodness, God's provision, and God's grace. And now, he's not going to be the one to lead them to the promised land. He will actually die within sight of the promised land. Moses' failure here illustrates a lot of the shortcomings when we try to live in a life-over-God posture. First, this posture reduces God to a reproducible formula. It assumes that the way God has worked in the past is the way that He will continue to work in the future. And once we've discovered the principles that govern God's actions, we can employ them with guaranteed outcomes. You'll hear this in people's language when they start to use phrases like, God always does, God never does, God only does. Those are phrases used in Christian communities, in Christian writings. They're used everywhere, and they usually indicate that a life-over-God posture has begun to creep into our lives. I think the first time that that I encountered this type of teaching was... Uh, in the mid-1980s, in the first church that I served in in southern Indiana, there was one of the pastors on staff who had fallen in love with this charismatic teacher and his organization, oddly enough, based in Hinsdale, Illinois. And he wasn't alone in this because over the decades, hundreds of thousands of people would sit through this guy's seminars and buy his teaching hook, line, and sinker. They were drawn to it because the teacher offered to them an answer to the chaos in our culture, the breakdown of the family and the home, the declining morality in our country, the way that kids were abandoning their faith. Remember, this is the 1980s, not this year. He was talking about these things then. And I felt, as I listened to him, I felt this growing sense of discomfort. Because everything he taught was couched in phrases like this. He would say, if you do these three things in your life, God is obligated to do this. If you do these five things, then God cannot do anything else other than this. He projected absolute certainty that he had figured out how God operates, or at least how our world operates, And as I sat there, over time, it just began to feel like instead of trusting God, he was calling us to place our trust in the principles that he was teaching. You know, it took me a long time to sort through that and figure out what was wrong with it and why it just felt odd and uncomfortable to me. It flies in the face of what Jesus Jesus taught. It flies, flies in the face of what's written in the New Testament. In Romans, Paul writes, How great are God's riches and wisdom and knowledge. How impossible it is for us to understand His decisions and His ways. For who can know the Lord's thoughts? Who knows enough to give God advice? Any takers on that one? And who's given God so much that He needs to pay it back? I didn't have the words for it then, but later I would see that teaching in light of these verses, and it left me wondering if everything in the Christian life can be explained by human cause and effect, why do we need God? Teaching like this marginalizes God's place in our life, and it eliminates it altogether in some instances. 
Implementing God's principles and and the outcomes from them are left on our shoulders. And that gives us nowhere to turn when, as often happens in life, the outcomes were not what we expected. The second terrible shortcoming of this posture is that it does nothing to alleviate our fear, which is at the root of our desire to control. Instead, it saddles us with the responsibility that we were never intended to carry. Listen to Jesus calling to us. His own words from Matthew 11. He says, come to me if you're you're weary, if you're carrying heavy burdens, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. Let me teach you. Because I'm humble and gentle at heart, and you'll find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy to bear, and the burden I'll give you is light. When we follow this life over God posture, it does nothing to free us from the sense of responsibility that we're prone to take to solve all of the problems we have in this life. It does nothing to alleviate that burden. It doesn't take away our fears. And so the rest that Jesus promises never comes. I think the third big downfall in a life over God is that it causes us to measure our progress in our relationship with God simply based on effective outcomes rather than our faithfulness to, our love for, our devotion to God. Think back to Moses striking the rock in Numbers chapter 20. When God had said, speak to the rock, and Moses struck it, was he effective? Absolutely. He struck that rock and water gushed and everyone was hydrated. From any human perspective, Moses was a huge success. Highly effective. And while the people may have praised God, praised Moses, God was unimpressed. It seems like God may have in this instance performed the miracle in spite of Moses, not because of him. And it's a caution to us that even when things are going well in our lives, even when the principles appear to be working, we may still have strayed far outside the boundaries of what God intends for a relationship with us. Ultimately, living this life over God, attempting to do that, can't deliver us from the cycles of fear and control that plague humanity. The promise is appealing. We begin to incorporate this because it sounds right and it sounds like it's going to work. It sounds like it'll give us a world where proven formulas will guarantee our security. But that's a dream that this posture cannot deliver. It is easy to gradually shift our focus in little ways over time, even if it's unintentional, from following God to following guidelines. And in so doing, we simply marginalize God's existence and relevance in our life. And our faith turns into a DIY project. Look, I I am drawn to DIY projects. I love to figure out problems and solve things. God's just wired me that way. And I think for those of you in the room who are wired similarly, this can be very appealing. It can be a posture with God that's really easy to slip into. I have a tendency at times in my walk with God to take that DIY skill set and apply it to spiritual issues. What that means 
is I can sometimes find myself drifting into a life over God posture where I've taken what I've learned from the Bible and I'm using it to correct the chaos in my world. It's really easy to marginalize or leave God out entirely of that process. When we fail to engage God, when we fail to engage in a relationship with Him on a daily basis, in the ordinary stuff of our life, it's as if we're saying, thanks God, I appreciate you teaching me how to live. And I got it now. I'm good. I don't need you anymore. And just like Moses, when we begin to do that, we can end up with some pretty dire consequences in our life. Because the only price a life, promise a life over God can deliver on is that it will ultimately lead us to no relationship with God at all. And that means we'll also have no life with Him at all.